Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, in a world that is constantly changing, constantly shifting, constantly moving, you are immutable. You remain the same. You are the same yesterday and today and tomorrow and will be forevermore. So Father, today we rest in your steadfast love and faithfulness. We rest in the confidence of knowing that you never change. Father, that though we may drift from you, you never drift from us. We get to rest in the promise that you are with us always until the end of the age. That there's not word, one word of your word that will not come to pass. So Father, this morning as we submit ourselves to the authority and to the testimony of your word, Lord, would you help us to do this in a posture of humility? Church, I just want to ask you to do something as you just keep your heads bowed. I just want you to, to put your hands just right out in front of you this morning. And there's nothing magical about this. There's nothing mystical about this. Just hands in front of you. Put, put your palms facing up. And all this is is just a posture of receiving. It's an acknowledgement that we have nothing to bring to the Lord on our own. And an acknowledgement to him that we want everything he has to offer. So ask him for that now, Lord, everything that you will allow us to experience of you on this side of glory, we ask boldly this morning, Lord, give it to us. Would your Holy Spirit move mightily in this room today in our hearts. Give us a renewed zeal and fervor and passion for your glory as we seek you with our whole hearts. So, Lord, be glorified in the preaching of your word. Father, I ask for your help this morning. In my weakness, you would be strong. We come to you now in need, and we ask, Lord Jesus, fill that need. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Ezra chapter 8 is what we're going to be looking at today. I want to say thank you to Dustin Nally uh, for bringing the word to us last week as I was going to enjoy a weekend away uh, with my family. Grateful for that opportunity um, to rest. And so Ezra chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. If you're new with us, you're here today with us for the very first time, watching online for the first time. We've been walking through the Old Testament book of Ezra now for several weeks. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll wrap this up next week and then move straight into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, taking us all the way up to Easter, but Ezra chapter 8 is where we'll be looking at today. In our family, uh, we are really creatures of habit, both Emily and I are, and we pretty much have the exact same morning routine most weekdays. And uh, I'm an early, early bird. I get up around four o'clock most mornings, and so I get up, and I'm downstairs, and I'm reading, and then uh, Emily's an early morning person too. She'll get up around five, and she'll come downstairs, and she'll work out in our living room. And I just kind of cheer her on, and you're doing a great job while I drink my coffee and read. And typically while she's working out, what I'll do is I'll get my AirPods, my headphones, and I'll stick them in, and I'll just turn on white noise just to drown out any distraction be able to focus on whatever it is I'm reading. And week before last, though, Emily came downstairs to work out, and I went to find my AirPods, and I couldn't find them anywhere. And again, being a creature of habits, I usually only have one or two places where I'll put things so that I'll remember where they are. And uh, they weren't in the drawer under my coffee maker where I might typically put them. They weren't in the bag that I usually take with me to work. So I launched an all-out rescue effort uh, around 5 o'clock in the morning for my AirPods. And uh, guys, I went outside. It was cold outside. I'm looking in my car. 
looking in the trunk of my car. I'm looking under the seats of my car. I go upstairs and I'm looking at our bedroom. I look at my desk and our guest bedroom. Can't find it there. So I actually get to the point. I'm inside our home, which is not a big place. And uh, I've got my phone out and I'm using the find my AirPods feature. So if you can just envision this, I'm literally using GPS in my own house trying to track down my lost AirPods. So I saw that the location was right there somewhere in our house, just 24 hours before was the last known location. Like, so they gotta be here somewhere. But after about 30 minutes of searching, I find nothing. I do what every good man does in this instance, and I begin to blame my children, right? So I've got three boys. I'm like, it's the oldest. He's always taking stuff off my desk. It's not his. It's the middle. He likes to hide things in backpacks. It's the youngest. He puts things in the trash can. So I'm literally looking through the trash can. In our kitchen, I'm going through the trash, making, and it's trash days. I'm worried that, man, my AirPods are going to get thrown away. And so this goes on 30, 45 minutes. And typically, after Emily's done working out, she'll go in the kitchen, she'll begin to make our boys' lunches for the day, and then we'll sit on the couch, and we'll pray together for 10, 15 minutes to start our day. And so, um, again, just envision this picture. I'm standing in the kitchen. I've got my phone using GPS on my phone. I'm like spinning around in circles because it said I was within five feet of where they were. I can't find them anywhere. Emily's sitting very quietly, patiently for me on the couch, looking at me like I'm a moron, which I, I looked at in, in that moment. And, and so I saw her sitting there and I put it on my phone and said, babe, I'm sorry, I just can't do it right now. I said, I'm frustrated. I've lost my whole morning. I've wasted all this time. I just can't pray with a good attitude right now. And she just very quietly and graciously just says, okay. And stands up and begins to go upside, and then I just tear right back into my search for my AirPods. Within about 30 seconds later, I just felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit because what the Lord was pressing into me at that moment was I was seeking with greater intensity a pair of headphones than I was willing to seek the Lord. And, and as, just to make the long story short, it was about two minutes later, I prayed what I felt like was the lamest prayer I'd ever prayed in my life was, Lord, please help me find these stupid AirPods so I can get back to my normal day. And sure enough, about a minute later, I remembered that the day before I'd carried a backpack with me that I don't usually carry in a location that I'd searched many times already and, and still finally got to the place where, where I'd found them. But the Lord just hit me with this lightning rod of conviction, like, Taylor, when is the last time you sought after me the way you are seeking a pair of headphones? An hour. An hour I spent looking for these things. And I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I realized there's so many ways that we seek after so many lesser things when the Lord invites us to seek after him. It was the great uh, mid-20th century revivalist, Leonard Ravenhill, who once said that at the judgment seat, the most embarrassing thing the believer will face will be the smallness of his praying. The most embarrassing thing the believer will face on the judgment day is the smallness of his praying. And church, I don't know about you, but I am desperate to see us become a people who are desperate in our seeking after the Lord. When we get to Ezra chapter 8, what we've seen over the last several weeks is the Lord has, as he promised to do, led his people out of Babylonian exile to return to Jerusalem to restore their home and rebuild their place of worship. And last week we saw how uh, decades after the first return wave had come back, the Lord had raised up Ezra, a scribe. And we saw in Ezra 7 that he sought his heart, he's, he searched in his heart, he used in everything that he had, he was seeking to know and to understand the law of God. And so the Lord raised him up, a strong ministry of the word as he continued to lead the people. And today in Ezra chapter 8, we see that he's now primed to lead the second return wave back to Jerusalem. But this is a journey that is going to require desperate dependency on the Lord every step of the way. So the people come together at a Hava, Ezra calls a fast, and he challenges 
challenges them to seek the Lord. I want you to say those three words with me this morning. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Church, if we are to see any movement of God in this generation, we once again have to become a people who are serious about seeking the Lord. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at Ezra chapter 8 is that those who seek the Lord, all of us who seek the Lord, will be carried and protected by the strength of his good hand. So when we get to Ezra chapter 8, uh, the first 15 verses is a manifest of those who are returning, uh, coming back on the return wave. We're not going to read this whole list this morning. But notably among that list are descendants of the tribe of Levi, and there's also uh, those who are descendants of King David. So we see that there is a desire among the people of God to to restore the priesthood, potentially to restore the kingship in Jerusalem. And then when we get down uh, to verse 15, this is what we find. It says in Ezra 8, 15, he writes, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and, they were camped, and we were camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. And this is problematic because if you're not aware, the sons of Levi, these were the, the priestly tribe who were responsible for leading the people in worship when they returned to Jerusalem. He said, I found none of the sons of Levi. And then I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And then I sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place of Casiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and to his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of God. So this is their problem, is they're ready to return to Jerusalem once again, but they are lacking adequate support to be able to serve and fulfill the functions of the temple. It says in verse 18, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah with his son and kinsman, 18. And Hashabiah, and with him, Jesheah, and the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So we see first this morning that by the good hand of God, the Lord will gather his people together. Again, this is decades after the first return wave has made their way out of exile and returned to Jerusalem. So with this second wave, we see that decades later, nearly 80 years later, the Lord is still making good on his promise. He promised that he was going to bring his people home. So uh, verses 1 through 14, we see there's nearly 1,500 men listed. If you included women and children of this, this would be a group probably upwards of five to 7,000 people. Again, about 80 years after the first wave returned. And Ezra sets uh, the people, leads them out to set up camp at a location called Ahava. Now, you'll love this on this Valentine's Day. Ahava simply means love. Guys, please don't go home and tell your wife, I Ahava you. So lame. Don't do it. But that's what it means today. It means love. This location's not exactly known. It was probably uh, near one of the canals that flowed from the Euphrates River. In verse 15, there's a problem. We see that Ezra reviewed the people and the priest, but he found none of the sons of Levi. So here they are. They're ready. They've already left their homes. They've left their jobs. They've left the only livelihood they've ever known. They are set up camp preparing to make the return journey home, and they realize there's nobody to work the temple. And this is a problem because one of the goals and what the Lord had called them to do was to restore worship. And this had been going on a little bit for uh, the several decades since the return wave had come back, but they still needed these reinforcements to come in to make sure the faithful worship of the Lord continued in Jerusalem. And so this really puts Ezra at a crossroads. This puts the people of God at a place where they've got two options. They can basically say, okay, 
Everybody's here. We're ready to go. We need to get moving. Let's go ahead and go. And they could begin serving the temple with unqualified priests, or they could stay and trust the Lord to provide. So once again, we see in the book of Ezra, the people of God face an internal temptation to compromise. But as we saw last week, Ezra chapter 7, he had set his heart to study the law of God. We learned from 2 Chronicles 24 that one of the main reasons for the exile in the first place was that they, they neglected the care and the upkeep of the house of God. And so Ezra uh, sets out a group here. He says uh, here that he sends a delegation of nine leaders. This includes two men of insight. They weren't Levites, but they were teachers and instructors who could sort of lead a discernment process to see who was, who was qualified to serve in the temple. And he says in verse 18, by the good hand of God on us, they bring a man of discretion. They bring a capable man who was up to the task of following or finding qualified leaders. And so in all, we see that 38 were found uh, of the tribe of Levi who were willing to serve. Now, uh, you look at this for just a second. And you say, man, why such a small number? You got thousands of people who were eager to return home. The Lord's instructed them to do this. But I just want us to put this in its context a little bit, maybe in some modern day terms. Remember, they've never lived in Jerusalem. This is a home they've only heard about, never seen up close. So they have actually become somewhat comfortable in exile. They've, they've started families and they've built homes. They have stable careers. Uh, they, they experience a fair amount of religious freedom, even under the Persian Empire. And so for them, life really isn't all that terrible. So just imagine someone comes to you, someone that maybe you don't even know all that well, and said, here's the deal. Uh, we would like you to uproot your family, to leave your job, to move to a foreign country that your ancestors are from, but you've really never been there before. And we want you to restart a family business that you'd have no experience in that's kind of fallen down for several decades. Oh, and by the way, we need you to decide in three days if you want to come. And, and so it's, you, you just look at what was required. I mean, this was a huge step of faith that was going to be required by all who were going to make this journey. But in all, there's 38 who still emerge and say, I'll go. Now, it's easy to imagine that Ezra, such a small number, he might be a little bit discouraged, but we only see from Ezra in chapter 8 his gratitude and his thanks to the Lord. Because for Ezra, he knew that 38 wasn't too few because they were going to be guided by the good hand of God. They were confident in the number that they had. And I think this is continuing to be one of the, the big modern struggles of the, the contemporary church, is that we continue to convince ourselves that more numbers equal stronger and that bigger equals better. And listen, it's, it's not that, that any church that, that grows above a certain amount is no longer effective and that they've uh, disconnected uh, from the will of God. They're not accomplishing their function and their purpose. But we have to be very, very careful that we not put all of our confidence in numbers because as Jesus teaches, sometimes a, a large group of people, it might not mean things are going right. It might mean somebody's doing something wrong. And so we have to use discernment and understanding. But Ezra here, he is not at all going to be uh, set back, going to be knocked down by the numbers. And so they lead forward in confidence. And church, we just have to be very, very careful that we not put our confidence in the numbers of man. Because church, our confidence is not in numbers. Our confidence is in a name. And Ezra had told them, he said, the good hand of our God will protect us. And we see his guidance and his provision each step of the way. We go down and we read... Uh, verses 21 through 23 here. This is an incredibly powerful picture. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. I want you to pay really close attention to verse 22, because we're going to sit down for here for a few minutes this morning. 
He said, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. Because I had told the king, the Lord will protect us. Verse 23 says, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So we see that the Lord will gather his people together. Second, this morning, we see that the Lord will guard his people from danger. Now, listen, guys, this is one of those passages of Scripture, church. I'm going to be honest. I'm scared to say a whole lot because I feel like anything I say about verse 22 or 23 is just going to mess it up. It's such a powerful picture that we get here. So uh, there's not a lot of explanation required here. They're gathered together at Ahava. Ezra calls a fast. He calls the people to seek the Lord. They humble themselves, seeking his protection. He refuses to ask the king for any sort of protection. Ezra had put the name of the Lord, his reputation, on the line. He had gone to the king and he said, we will be protected by the good hand of God. We do not need your soldiers. We do not need your chariots. We do not need weapons. The good hand of the Lord will guide us and protect us. And here what we see in this passage, it's, it's this tension of, of understanding that God will fulfill his promises. He will fulfill his plans. He will fulfill his purposes. And yet the people still don't forsake their responsibility to pray. Because this is what happens with some of us a lot of times, I think, is we know God's sovereign, God's in control, God's going to keep his word, God's going to keep his promises, God's going to fulfill his plans. That means I really don't have to pray, but time out. Because this is what we see all through scripture, and this is what we see through church history, and it's just one of those tensions. I'm not sure we're going to fully understand this side of eternity, but God in his sovereignty has ordained that he will fulfill his plans and his purposes and his promises through the prayers of his people. So they have full confidence the good hand of the Lord will protect us, and yet Ezra calls the people to fast. He calls the people to pray. It says they implored the Lord for this. He listened to our entreaty. They were begging. They had put the name of the Lord, his reputation, on the line, and they were pleading for him to do this great work for the sake of his name. Church, you and I, we live in a context, and we've had the privilege of living in a context where we enjoy religious freedom. You and I, by and large, we have grown up in a nation, we've grown up in a context where we really don't face any sort of serious opposition for our faith. And again, even when you you consider the small oppositions that we've begun to face over the last 10, 15 years, it still pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters experience in persecuted contexts. You understand this, right? Like, Like most of what we face as opposition is not even close to persecution, even though we sometimes pretend like it is. But here's what I fear has happened, is we've been given this good gift of religious freedom, but for many of us, it's not just become a gift, it's actually become an idol. We cannot even fathom or comprehend what it might look like to follow Jesus and to worship the Lord in a context where it might actually cost us something. We're never promised this in God's word. We're never promised that we won't face opposition. As a matter of fact, we are promised the opposite. Jesus promised all of his disciples, he said, you will all be hated for the sake of my name. We'll experience opposition. We'll experience persecution from the Lord, from the world. This is what happens for all who call on the name of the Lord. And this in no way, shape, or form hinders the people of God here from fulfilling their mission. We trust that the good hand of God will protect us. 
you know, one of the most powerful uh, Christian testimonies over the last century uh, is the story of Brother Andrew. I'm just curious by show of hands this morning, how many of you are familiar with the story of Brother Andrew? You need to go look this up online. He's known uh, sometimes as God's smuggler. The Lord had placed it on his heart to take the message of the gospel, and even more specifically, to take Christian literature behind the Iron Curtain at the height of the Cold War uh, into, into the heart of communism. And uh, so he, he tells this one really powerful story. This is one really powerful story about how he's driving up to a security checkpoint, and he's got a trunk full of Bibles. He's got a trunk full of Bibles. He drives up to the security checkpoint, and the car in front of him, the guards who are there, they come around this car, and they spend over one hour searching this one single vehicle. They take off the hubcaps of the car. They open the doors. They remove the door panels of the car. They open up the trunk of the car, and they're, they're pulling out stuff from the trunk, and they're opening up the hood, and they're searching underneath the car with mirrors, and he's thinking to himself, surely this is where I'm going to get caught. But as he's standing there, he boldly prays this to the Lord, some of his most famous words. He said, Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. And do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. He pulled up to the checkpoint, the guards opened his trunk, and then they sent him through. The Lord will guard his people from danger. The good hand of God will protect us. God help us if we put our confidence in the security of government and not in the confidence of his strong hand. We can trust that our God is good and that he's going to see his people through. So the people fasted. The people fasted. They implored the Lord, and it says he listened to their entreaty. And church, I just wonder this morning, how often do we forfeit the experience of knowing God's protection simply because we've forsaken our responsibility to pray? They fasted. They prayed. They sought the Lord with their whole hearts. And when his good hand is on us, he'll guard us from danger. So verses 24 through 27, we see that Ezra sets apart the priests. He puts the temple treasure in their hands in accordance with the Mosaic law from Leviticus chapter 3. And then this is what we see towards the end of chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. It says, And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy, and the silver and gold are freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, the house of God. He says, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th, month of the first, 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And so from here, within the rest of the chapter, they arrive in Jerusalem. He continues to distribute the temple treasure and the vessels to the priests. They start to make sacrifices. They deliver the commission from King Artaxerxes, and they serve the needs of the temple. So the Lord, by his good hand, he will gather his people together. He'll bring them together. He'll provide everyone that they need, and the number that he provides will always be enough. We have confidence that the Lord will guard his people from danger, that we should be ashamed to ask for protection from man because we know that we will be protected by the good hand of God. And third, this morning, we see that the Lord will guide his people home. He will guide his people home. 
Just the same way he brought the first return wave in the same way that he promised he has now brought the second return wave. He will bring and guide his people home. Numbers 3 tells us that the Lord had set apart the Levites to be his holy priests. And so Ezra, so again, just several verses before, we see before this journey started, he, he first had no qualified priests that they weren't ready to return and begin serving the needs of the temple. And so once again, Ezra reminds them that the good hand of God was upon them, that he provided the people that they needed for the service in the temple. And their example for us, church, is the reminder that our true security lies in the Lord. If he's called us to something, he's not going to call us to do anything for which he will not also provide. He's made every provision, he's met every need across the way, whether it was material, whether it was people, whether it was protection from enemy, he brought them out of bondage and slavery and took them to where he said he would. Church, our confidence is not in our heritage, it's not in our genealogy, it's not in our places of worship, it's not in religious freedom. Our confidence is in the presence and the power of God who will never leave us or forsake us. You know, in the same way that Ezra has consecrated the priest, the Word of God tells us that you and I as well have been set apart. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we know that the priesthood is no longer limited to a select tribe of people, is now made available to all who by faith have called on the name of Jesus for their salvation. The final sacrifice for sin has been made. Jesus is the great high priest who made the final sacrifice, who was the final sacrifice. And all who have put their faith in him and put their trust in him are covered by his blood. And we are now too set apart as priests. I want you to turn with me in your Bible here for just a moment to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read together verses 9 and 10. And we we looked at this passage very, very briefly uh, several weeks ago, but I want us to look at it again here this morning because this is what has been made available to all of us who are united to Christ by faith. This is is, how we've now been set apart as the people of God. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes to the believers, he says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the same way that these people were exiles, in the same way that they were not a people, the Lord returns them home and once again calls them a people. Those who had been under the wrath of his judgment are now recipients of his mercy. Those who had no geographic location of home once again have a home. And the same is true for us when we're united to Christ in faith. Once we were not a people, We were enemies of God, rejecting God, far from God, running away from God. We were doing our own thing. We were our own nation rebelling against him, but he's called us to himself. He's gathered us to himself and made us his own. Once, because of our sin, we were under the wrath and the judgment of God, but through Christ, God, who is rich in mercy, has raised us to new life in him. Once we were unqualified, unfit for any service in the kingdom, but God has covered us and cleansed us by the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, and we are now qualified as a kingdom of priests for his name. And this is what's available to all of us who are in Christ. We have the confidence that the Lord will always gather his people together. The Lord will always preserve a remnant. No matter how bad things seem, the Lord will always gather his people together and call a remnant to himself. The Lord will be with us always. He'll protect us so that even if we lose our lives, we still inherit infinite glory in Christ. We have the confidence of knowing he's with us always to the end of the age. He's going to guide us home. So church, our response this morning is very simple. It's what the people did in Ezra 8. What's our calling today? 
is to seek the Lord. If the Lord will gather his people together, if he'll guard them from danger, if he'll guide them home, then the only logical response is that we be a people who seek the Lord. You know, during the month of January, um, second week of January, we'd met together, staff and elder team, and we just felt burdened to call our church family into a few weeks of prayer and fasting. And so we did. We challenged you to 21 days of, of prayer and fasting, and, and many of you took us up on this, and you accepted that challenge. And it's been amazing just to hear some of the testimonies of how you pressed into that. And, and, and throughout the month of January, man, we had some powerful mornings where we saw dozens of people respond to the message of the gospel, and the Lord just shaking people out of a lot of complacency and, and just doing a real work of renewing in hearts. And so we get to the end of the month of January, and our elder team met February 1st, and there was just this sense that the work was still unfinished. But we felt uncomfortable about suddenly just pulling back and saying, you know what, I think we're done right now. And we just really felt that the Lord was calling us to, to press in at an even deeper level as a church. And then met with our staff the very next day, and we had the same conversation. Well, then about a week and a half ago, that Wednesday morning, I'm sitting down to study for this message from Ezra chapter 8. And I see in verses 21 to 23 that Ezra called a fast. And I knew right away, Lord, you're not letting us off the hook. And so we, we again got together as, as a staff and our team. We're going to talk about this a lot more at the end of our time together today. But church, we are once again, so, so today, this week, uh, actually later this week, marks the beginning of what's known as the, the Lenten season. It's a season of sacrifice and repentance as we uh, look forward to Easter Sunday, including today, uh, Easter seven weeks from today, but including today, we have 50 days until Easter. And we believe the Lord is calling us once again for 50 days to enter into a season of fasting and praying and desperately seeking the Lord. This is not something we amen a whole lot, like, oh boy, 21 was okay, 50, wow. No, we, we believe the Lord is calling us to an even deeper level to continue pressing into the work that he's doing, to continue setting our sails, to catch the wind in the way of the Holy Spirit. Church, it's abundantly clear the Lord has shaken the foundations of our nation over the last year. He's shaken the foundations of his church. The, the, the season is ripe and prime for revival. The question is, are we going to be here for it? Are we going to be available to what the Lord is doing? That's going to be our challenge to you once again. And so, so I want to talk for about, about fasting for just a second because fasting really does tend to be one of the most misunderstood and misapplied of the spiritual disciplines. Sometimes it's misunderstood uh, because fasting has sort of a negative connotation attached to it. We tend to think of fasting as the thing that we do right before surgery, right? And, and that's not something that's really fun for us. That's not typically a pleasant experience. Um, sometimes I think we struggle with fasting because Jesus teaches us it's something we should do in secret. It's not something that we do publicly to be seen by others or for the praise of others. It's really just something that we do uh, personally to be seeking the Lord um, together. And so sometimes I think we just don't see it. And, and we're, in, in a sense, not supposed to see it because it's something that's just between us and the Lord. Uh, some of us, I think, worry that fasting will turn us into some sort of religious fanatic, right? We're going to become like John the Baptist out in the wilderness. We're going to be eating locust and wild honey. And, and it's just like, I, I'm not sure I really want to go to that level. That sounds like something that's for the super Christians and not just for normal Christians like me. But we forget sometimes Jesus teaches along with praying and giving. He says, when you fast. Jesus doesn't teach fasting as a suggestion. He teaches it as an assumption. It's just going to be part of the normal rhythms of the ebb and flows of the spiritual disciplines in our lives. And so uh, I, I think it's really helpful this morning. We've, we've given this uh, definition be on the screen for you today. This is from Richard Foster. He's got a really helpful book on the spiritual disciplines. And uh, he has said of fasting that fasting is the voluntary refrain of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. This past week, Emily was listening to a podcast and she reminded me it was also Richard Foster who said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things 
that control us. What can you imagine not having for 50 days? I hate to break it to you this morning. That's probably the thing you need to fast from the most. The question is for us this morning, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to give up to press in at a deeper level to see God move in our church family and to see him move in our community? How are we willing to press in and, and seek the Lord? And so listen, this is going to be at different levels for, for, for different people. You know, some of us that might look like one meal or even more a day for the next 50 days. It might look like fasting that cup of coffee for the next 50 days. It might look like a, a digital detox, disconnecting from social media or streaming media. It might be something like, uh, like compulsive spending. You know, Amazon Prime's the worst, right? You just swipe, buy it now. You just got to swipe. Comes to your house two days later. What's it going to be? Well, what is something that's a normal rhythm, a normal function in your life that you are going to refrain from for the sake of intense spiritual activity? And this is where I think fasting sometimes gets misapplied because understand, if you don't eat for the next 50 days, but you don't pray, like you just went on a diet. And that's cool too. Like we, we probably need to have this sometimes, but the point of removing the physical desire is to increase our spiritual desire. That we be like the psalmist in Psalm 63, 1, and he prays like this. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Fasting is a desperate plea for rescue and survival at the hand of the Lord. This is why Ezra consecrates a fast. He's calling the people to a place of desperation. He's calling the people to a place of dependency. And we see in verses 21 to 23 that they humbled themselves. They were imploring God for this. They were begging God for this. They were pleading him for this. And here's what I think you and I are going to run into. And we're going to try to break through this even here this morning and put our money where our mouth is in just a moment. I, I think what, what keeps us in many times from entering into this state of desperation and dependency in prayer is we as modern, sophisticated Christians, we are terrified of looking weak. We're terrified of looking weak. Some of us, I fear, have been so lulled to sleep by this heartless, impersonal religious pietism that we have no, con no concept whatsoever of what it looks like to be foolish in the sight of man as we cry out to God. We're not willing to be seen as weak. We're not willing to weep tears over the lost. We're worried about how we look, and we're worried about how we sound in public perception of everybody else in church. I'm challenging us to be a people who are willing to humble ourselves and cry out to God who are desperate to see him move, who implore him with the confidence of knowing he will listen to that pleading. He will listen to our entreaty. We seek him and we show him, Lord, we're coming after you with everything that we have. Um, my, my grandfather's 90 years old now. I've shared about him a good bit over the last year. He's, he's getting older. He's slowed down. He's uh, served a faithful life over 70 years in full-time ministry he spent. And there's a story he used to tell me about uh, when he was serving in ministry in Fort Payne, Alabama, back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, they would have revival meetings. When's the last time you heard those words, by the way? They'd have revival meetings. And before the meetings started, they would go uh, to this place that was um, just a remote location. It was known locally there as the Hole in the Rock. I've actually got a picture of this um, this morning. It's going to be on the screen um, behind me here. And uh, if, as you're, you're looking at the screen, that, that's actually, it's, it's a little bit blurry. That's actually my grandfather at the bottom right there. Um, and, and so what they would do is that they would go to this place that was known as the Hole in the Rock. You can only access it by climbing up a ladder. And so before the revival meeting started, they would gather a group together and they would climb the ladder. They would go into this cave and they would cry out to God. They'd get on their knees and they'd lift up their hands. And for hours and hours and hours, they would cry out to God. It's amazing just hearing the stories he said of, of how you could be hundreds of yards away and hear clearly what was being prayed up in the hole. As people lifted their voices to the Lord, 
And they'd come down the ladder, and then they'd gather together and have meetings together. And the Lord, he'd see a wave of revival take place. There'd be dozens who would profess faith in Jesus Christ. And the revival meeting would go off for two, three days, and then things would kind of start to die down. And when most of us would say, well, that was fun, check our watches, glad we did revival this year and move on, what they would do is they would hike back to the hole in the rock. And they'd climb up the ladder. And they'd get on their knees and they'd cry out to God and lift their hands and they'd beg him and plead with him to move. And they'd come down the ladder and then they'd return to worship and another wave of people would be saved. And then it would die down for a couple days and then they would hike back out to the hole on the rock and they would climb the ladder and they would cry out to God. They weren't afraid to be seen as foolish. They weren't afraid to weep. They weren't afraid to call out and to yell and to be seen as stupid and look like idiots in the eyes of the world. And we've lost this today. We've lost this. We're so strong. We think we so have it together and we hinder the move of the Holy Spirit with our strength. And we need to be seen as weak. And I just wonder, church, how many of us are willing to climb the ladder? How many of us are willing to break up our schedule and make room and time on our schedule to see God move? To be seen as weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, to implore the Lord, to beg him and trust that he's going to listen to our entreaty because he will. The Lord had promised the people before they went into exile, Jeremiah 29, he said, you will seek me. The time will come, you will seek me once again, and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Your whole heart. Not part of your heart, not some of your heart, not most of your heart, not the vast majority of your heart, not with the non-political part of your heart, with your whole heart, you will find me. Jesus carries this out as he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And church, I just wonder, what are we not receiving because we're not asking? What are we not finding because we're not seeking? Maybe the door of revival remains shut because we're not knocking. What will we do? Are we willing to be seen as weak? Are we willing to be viewed as foolish, as people who will get on our knees and cry out to God and seek him in fasting and praying and implore him to do a work for the sake of his name? Are we willing to put his reputation on the line and say we are ashamed to ask for the protection of man because the good hand of God will protect us. The good hand of God will gather his people together. The good hand of God will guard us from all danger of the enemy and the good hand of God will guide us home. Are we willing to do this? Are we willing for seven weeks with our whole hearts to press into what the Lord is doing and see how he might move in our midst? Because this is what we're building up to on Easter Sunday, church. Talk about this here in just a few moments. On Easter Sunday, we're going to have as many worship services as we can that weekend in this building. We're going to invite our community in a way that we've not been able to in a long time. We're going to invite people to respond to the gospel, and we are going to challenge them to be baptized that day before they leave. We're going to counsel them in the moment to make sure they understand what's going on. We're going to have t-shirts. We're going to have shorts. We're going to remove every obstacle and any excuse that might exist. And we are praying for God to ignite a wave of revival and awakening. I want us to have the boldness to put the Lord's reputation on the line, because I think he loves it when we do. And he's eager to move. And so, church, this is what I'm going to ask us to do this morning. I just want you to bow your heads with me here for a moment as we begin to close. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. It's easy to amen this. It's easy to say, let's get excited about that. It's easy to talk about crying out to God. In just a second, we're going to cry out to God. And I'm going to invite you just, just across this room, if you want to stand and lift your hands, if you want to get on your knees and pray. I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, I'm inviting you to pray out loud with me that we would agree together in prayer, that we would plead with the Lord.
Our prayer team's in the back of the room, and maybe you need to approach somebody this morning and say, I need to be revived personally. I need the Lord to awaken my heart, and I'm, I'm challenging you this morning to be willing to be seen as weak, to be willing to be seen as not having it together, to not worry about the perception of what people might think if you move back there, or what people might think if we stand and pray. If the Spirit is going to move, we have to be willing to be weak, to call out in Him in confidence and trust that He will be strong. And so you, you move as the Lord leads you, but in just a second, as I begin to pray, I'm inviting you to join me in prayer, to agree with me in prayer, to stand, to lift your hands, to lift your voices. Stop worrying about what people think of you. Stop worrying about how you look. Stop worrying about how you sound. Let's cry out to God, implore our God to do a work for the sake of his name. So you join me however the Lord leads you as I pray this morning. God, we need you. We need you. God, we are desperate to see you move, Lord. We are eager to see the outpouring of your Holy Spirit in this place, God. We are eager to see a wave of revival and awakening take place in our community, Lord, and we confess that our strength has gotten in the way, that we have put our trust in the wrong things, that we have not trusted in your hand to guide us and to protect us, Lord. We we confess this morning that we have been afraid of being viewed as weak and foolish. God, that we have not called out to you, Lord, that we seek lesser things when we should be seeking your glory. Lift your voices with me in church. Do we want this or not? God, we need you. God, we need you. We beg you, Lord, to move. We beg you to move in our church. We beg you to move in our community. God, to move in our lives, to do a work in our day that can only be attributed to your power and to your glory. And we beg you to do this work. Father, we look at a community where over 100,000 people do not worship you, and we ask you, Lord, what will you do for the sake of your name? How will you move? You will surely not allow your name to be forgotten in Beaufort, South Carolina. Lord, help us to be those who are causing it to be remembered in all generations so that the nations will praise you forever and ever. We beg this of you this morning, Lord. Move in our hearts, move in our midst, move in our church, move in this city. You will do this. Church, do you agree that he can do this? Do we agree that he can do this? We press into this. We challenge you 50 days. Seek the Lord with your whole heart. Seek him with your whole heart. Commit this to him this morning. I just want to invite everyone to stand with me as we we begin to close. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, to receive communion, to visibly, once again, remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, this message of the gospel that has brought salvation to our souls, a message that we can't hold to ourselves. Just bow your heads with me again one more time as we just, we take a moment to reflect. We just ask the Lord to reveal our sin. What pride does he need to break down? What complacency does he need to break down? What hidden sins do we have in our lives that we refuse to acknowledge as sin that we continue to suppress and ignore? Let's confess that before him now. Whatever attitudes, whatever actions, whatever behaviors. We confess our sin with the assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 9, that tells us if we will confess our sins, this God who we sang of earlier, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us of our sins. 
no matter how evil, no matter how wicked, no matter how vile your sin is, there is nothing you have done that is any match for the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you've been united to him in faith, there is not one word of the enemy's condemnation that is true over you. So Father, give us hearts of genuine repentance. We would not be people who are simply sorry for our sins, that we would be broken over our sin. We would turn from our sin and run from our sin to lay hold of the perfect righteousness that we have in you.